Testing, testing, one, two, three. Hi, this is Gary Meese with The Case Against. I believe we're up to episode six. Today I'm going to be covering the material in uh, a chapter on uh, call, from my book uh, Blood on Black about the West Memphis Three case called I Can't Fathom Where You Would Get That. The second volume uh, uh, of the two-book series is the uh, Where the Monsters Go. Uh, and then I can combine those two books into a condensed, revised volume called uh, The Case Against the West Memphis Three Killers. They're all available on Amazon. And, uh, you know, if you purchase... The case against the West Memphis Three Killers, I would say, and you don't really want to get into a whole bunch of detail about the case, that's your best choice. If you want a more complete detail than the, the two larger, the two larger volumes, which are roughly, roughly together, more than twice the size of the third book, uh, would be where you would want to go. Uh, enough of the advertisement. Okay, this is from the chapter concerning uh, what are usually known as the uh, primary alternative suspects. And I would say that that is most unfortunate that these two men have been victimized by this characterization. But I'll, I will get into it. The primary alternative suspects have been parents of the victims, John Mark Byers and Terry Hobbs though Byers' whereabouts were well-documented and evidence against Hobbs rest on meager and tenuous DNA findings. West Memphis police clearly talked to the parents when the boys went missing and after the bodies were found. Police did not extensively interview the parents or file lengthy reports on conversations with them. I mean, this is even apparent from uh, the Paradise Lost movies. You know, there's there's conversations going on between the police and the parents. There was information being passed back and forth. The police were observing them uh, all along. Uh, they didn't file, as I say here, they didn't file extensive reports on the, on the parents. And, you know, in retrospect, it's, it's unfortunate that they didn't do more uh, recording of uh, interviews, didn't do extensive interviews initially with everybody, record those, uh, do more testing, just so we wouldn't have these questions popping up, you know, 5, 10, 15, 20, 25 years later. Uh, back to the book. On May 10th, police obtained brief, sketchy explanations about the parents' whereabouts on May 5th and 6th. Todd Moore said he did not return home until 5 to 5.15 a.m. on the 6th and had not gone across the pipe into Robin Hood Hills. Todd, Todd was a truck driver, and he was out on his job at the time, overnight an overnight trek that's very well documented, extremely well documented, uh, as if he needs documentation. Uh Mark Byers said he had begun searching around 6.30 on the 5th and was behind the Blue Beacon truck wash. Just a second. 
behind the Blue Beacon truck wash around 9 and again at 10. And the Blue Beacon was next to Robin Hood Hills wooded area that was right, uh, wooded area uh, right next to the service road, which is right next to the I-10, I-40 um, corridor in, in West Memphis. Um, Pam Hom said she had gone into the woods briefly around 10 a.m. on the 6th, but not stay long because she had a bad feeling about the area. Terry Hobbs was not at home for the 2.30 p.m. visit by police. This was on May 10th. Some of the siblings of the victims were interviewed more extensively. Police took a statement on May 8th from Dawn Moore, Michael's 10-year-old sister, that included her account of seeing three teenagers, one white and two black, coming out of Robin Hood on May 5th as she was searching for her brother. And um, <clears throat> Dawn uh, appeared in one of the more egregious egregiously appalling episodes in Bob, Bob Ruff's Truth and Justice podcast. And, you know, she was nine or ten at the time, and it was quite some time ago, and she, she didn't really offer any new information uh, concerning what she, you know, when she, uh, about seeing Michael and his friends and so forth. Um, it was basically, you know, some family gossips, gossip and some other things that just were not really that relevant to the case. And you know, it was really sort of inexcusable for Ruff to take advantage of, of the, her family situation at the time. But that's his style of doing things. Uh, on May 12th, Ryan Clark, Christopher's 13-year-old half-brother, gave a detailed rundown in his search efforts. Ryan gave another interview to Mike Allen in which he described Christopher's circle of friends and passed along a rumor about a white van following children in the neighborhood. Police eventually checked out the whereabouts of Christopher Byers' biological father, Ricky Lee Murray, who was living in Henryville, Indiana. Police in Clark County, Indiana, extensively interviewed Murray on May 24th, and he gave a rough accounting of his whereabouts on May 5th. Murray died in... 2013 at age 52, and he was an advocate for the idea that the West Memphis Three were innocent, um, from my understanding, and I there was a website, there may still be a website devoted to his, his belief in this. I'm not sure what his reasoning was at the time, but our, our, our sense, but anyway, um, Little Stevie's dad, Steve Branch, was told his son was missing the morning of May 6th. Branch immediately drove down from his home in Osceola, which is up the road, up uh, 55 from West Memphis, maybe 30, 40 miles, to help search. While Pam Hobbs initially suspected Branch had taken their son, he has never been a suspect and has staunchly denounced Eccles, Baldwin, and Miss Kelly as the killers of his son. Miss Melissa Byers gave police some background on Christopher's activities and named possible suspects in a May 25th interview. There was no indication that she was questioned about her or her husband's activities on May 5th. Police extensively interviewed Mark Byers on May 19th. 
Byers gave a detailed accounting of May 5th and 6th and offered possible leads. Toward the end, Ridge and Sudbury confronted Byers. Ridge told him, I may have information. This information suggests that you have something to do with the di disappearance of the boys and ultimately of the murder. Okay, what is your response to that? Byers says, my first response is I can't fathom where you would get that. And it makes me so mad inside that I just kind of got to hold myself here in this chair. Unquote. Byers couldn't imagine who could be making such an accusation and affirmed that he had nothing to do with the killings. Gleaned mostly from his statements to police, though often corroborated, Byers' schedule for May 5th ran like this. Round five, Byers picked up Melissa from her job at a jewelry supply company in Memphis and dropped her off at home. Then Byers left to get Ryan, who was testifying in a reckless driving case at the courthouse. On the way, he spotted Christopher skateboarding down 14th Street. Byers took the boy home, spanked him with a belt, and instructed Christopher to clean up the carport. Byers left again for the courthouse around 5.30. Byers and Ryan returned around 6.15. Byers first realized Christopher wasn't home around 6.30. Melissa had last seen him around 5.30 to 5.45. Back home, Mark talked to Melissa about Chris's whereabouts and sent Ryan to look for him. After Ryan returned, the family drove around for about an hour. Around 7.30, Byers alerted a police officer in a parked patrol car that his son was missing. The officer told them to wait until about 8 and then call in a report. Back home, Byers called the sheriff's department because they had a search and rescue squad. The dispatcher there told him to call the West Memphis Police. He called the West Memphis Police. Officer Regina Meek short, showed up shortly thereafter at 8.10 and took a report, then called it in. As she was preparing to leave, Michael's Moore, Michael Moore's mother, Dana, knocked on the door and told them that Christopher was with Michael and Stevie. She had seen Michael riding his bike along with Stevie and Christopher shortly after six. Dana had been looking for her son for about an hour and a half. She said Terry Hobbs had been looking for Stevie since 4.30 or 5. After 8 p.m., Ryan and Byers began door-to-door -door queries. A little girl and boy told them that they and their mother had seen the boys going into Robin Hood about 6.30. Ryan and Byers returned home. Dana continued looking for the boys, and according to Byers' May 19th statement, Terry Hobbs, quote, had come up by then around 8.30. As search parties converged around the entry to the woods, darkness began settling in. Hobbs told him he was going to, according to Byers, Hobbs told them, quote, he was going to spread out down, you know, woods where they were found. I don't know how far down that way he went, but he was going to look that way, said Byers. Ryan's friends, Richie Masters and Britt Smith, helped search. Byers, dressed in shorts and flip-flops, walked two blocks home to change into coveralls and boots. And this is... <laughs> Ridiculously, some people seem to think that this was his excuse to sneak away and commit these crimes. Uh, I don't know how he 
could do that. I don't know how he would find time to do that. I don't, it doesn't make, it's on the face of it, it's a ridiculous claim. But there you go. Uh, then, quote, I made a pass. I went all the way back to the back and walked up the gully to where it makes a real steep washdown, unquote. He decided to borrow a flashlight from a neighbor, Robert Fountain. Before he could leave the scene around 9.40 p.m., Officer John Moore, who's no relation to Todd or Dana, encountered Byers and agreed to search with his flashlight. They walked back up the trail. Byers said to Moore, he went down the bank and looked around in the water with his light, and he said, it don't look to me like anybody you know has been down in here. And, you know, this is another one of those things where people read this and they go, they conclude, well, the bodies weren't there at the time. Well, they were in the water. They weren't obvious to a, a, a officer walking around there, walking around in that general area with a flashlight who was not looking in the, let's presume he was not looking closely in the water for bodies at this point. They had some boys who were missing. They didn't have boys that were presumed dead. And certainly they didn't have boys who were presumed to have been submerged in water. Uh, back to the book. They continued to search, finding two sets of bicycle tracks. They came out of the woods. M Moore got into his car. Byers estimated the time at 10.30 or quarter to 11. Moore told Byers to go home, call the police station, and check on, up on the status of the report filed by Officer Meek. Byers got home at 11. He talked to Meek, who put out an alert. Byers called the sheriff's department again before continuing to search. Then, Byers said, he and Ryan drove to the Blue Beacon, where they honked the horn and yelled into the woods. He talked to Blue Beacon employees. Byers returned home, where he met Stevie Branch's grandfather, Jackie Hicks, who had driven down from Blytheville, Arkansas. Byers, Melissa, Dana, Hobbs, Jackie Hicks, and a friend of Hobbs with a beard, this is presumably David Jacoby, stood out under the streetlight and talked over the possibilities. Quote, you know, we just kind of felt helpless, said Byers, so we stood there talking. Then we just went back to the woods and said, let's make another pass through. Around 1.30 or a quarter to two, a police sergeant pulled up and told them a search was underway. Byers checked out an abandoned house. A friend, Tony Hudson, arrived. Hudson, Byers, and Melissa drove up on the service road to where the Mid-Continent uh, building was being rebuilt. They, the, This building had been destroyed in a tornado, uh, largely destroyed in a tornado, I think, I think it was 89, uh, it was, and it was up on the service road, and it was well, well away from the, the crime site. It's on the other side of Missouri Street. Um, anyway, they checked out the site, then returned home. Hudson said he was going to make a few more rounds. Byers estimated the time at two or three o'clock. So we quote, so we just sat there waiting for daylight. And then just as soon as it got daylight, Terry Hobbs and I, and I think Dana and maybe Todd, you know, knocked on the door and then I got my boots on. And then we, then we went off looking again. Joining in the morning search were Todd Moore and Steve Branch Sr. 
Those who viewed Byers as the culprit generally claimed he had time to kill the boys and clean up the kill site when he went home to change clothes or, or that he killed them, hid the bodies in a manhole or killed them elsewhere and deposited the bodies in the ditch late that night. It's even been suggested that when Ryan and Britt Smith were spooked out of their search of the woods and Ryan and uh, and Britt Smith heard these splashing sounds, and they d- it did run them out of the woods. The splash, splash, splash sounds and noises that sounded like gunshots were the result of buyers disposing of the bodies. These ideas border between the ridiculous and the impossible. Byers' presence was well accounted for virtually all evening. The few interludes when he was by himself would have given him little opportunity to commit the crimes and cover up the site. Byers drew suspicion because of his flamboyant words and actions before the cameras, his history as a drug dealer and police informer, giving a knife to a member of a blood crew that held a dollop of dried blood matching both himself and Christopher, and having his teeth pulled in a murder case in which defense experts brought late into the case alleged the bodies had bite marks. Based on dental records, Byers' teeth did not match the supposed bite marks. As for Hobbs, Byers cited his presence around 8 or 8.30 and around 1 to 1 a.m., 1.30 a.m. with Jacoby as well as at first light of day on Thursday. Dana told Byers that Hobbs had been searching since around 4.30 or 5, corroborating Hobbs' statement about early contact with Dana. Byers described Hobbs continuing his search after their encounter around 8.30. In courtroom testimony, Melissa named Hobbs as a searcher. Now, keep in mind, none of these people were trying to provide an alibi for Hobbs, Terry Hobbs at the time. They were just simply mentioning him quite casually, and there was very, honestly, there was very little focus about what Hobbs was doing from anybody in this case up until around 2007 or so. For good or bad, maybe, you know, uh, as I say, if a little closer look and a lot of these questions would have been answered quite some time ago. Uh, But even so, these mentions are enough to establish that Hobbes was actively searching for his son that evening. Just as there's enough corroboration of what you can cast doubt on a buyer's statements is, is when he's the sole source. And Melissa's died uh, under mysterious circumstances in around 96 or so. So she, she, um, she's not here today to answer any questions. But, you know, she died believing that the three killers of her son were in prison. Didn't really solve her existential problem. She seemed to feel life was not worth living after this killing. And she had some personal problems that were pre-existing with, with drugs that that wore her down, certainly. May have well, at the very least, probably contributed to her death and may have been the direct cause of it. It's a little, un, the, little unclear. There hasn't been a direct ruling as last, uh, as far as I know, there hasn't been a direct ruling on her cause of death. Uh, she was abusing drugs at the time, but the blood levels in her system didn't seem to indicate an overdose. So 
it's a bit of a mystery as to exactly what caused her death. And it's probably one of those questions that's never going to be answered. Back to the book. Uh, when Stevie didn't come home at 4.30 as scheduled, Pam and Terry made a quick search by car starting around 4.50 before pa Terry dropped Pam off at work. When Terry arrived to pick Pam up around 9.25 p.m., he told her Stevie was still missing. Police were called. Terry told her that the three boys were together and that Mark and Dana had called the police. Officer Moore arrived at Catfish Island to take statements, and Cash Catfish Island was the restaurant where Pam was working, and she was on, in, in training to be some sort of night manager there. Um, so, Hobbs, Terry Hobbs did not tell Pam about Steve, Stevie being missing until after he came to pick her up. And presumably, perhaps some of the reason is because she was involved and in, she was working. She would have had to leave work. She was in training to be a, a manager. And, and you know, he, I, I'm sure he was hoping the kid would just pop up. I, you know, I have no doubt about that. He, he said, well, you know, he, they, they went off someplace and they're going to be home even though it's after dark. I think any parent can relate to that hope. Uh, let's see where I was. When Terry arrived to pick Pam up around 9.25 p.m., he told her Stevie was still missing. The police were called. Terry told her that the three boys were together and that Mark and Dan had called the police. I already read all this. Uh, Officer Moore arrived at Catfish Island to take statements. Then Terry and Pam began patrolling the neighborhood with an emphasis on Robin Hood Hills. Amanda, um, little Amanda was along for the trip. Uh, they rode around until Terry dropped off. And Amanda apparently was with Terry Hobbs quite a, quite a bit of the time that evening. Um, it's a little unclear and nobody's, you know, you can get different stories, different versions of where Amanda was that evening. It's not clear from either Jacoby or from Hobbs exactly where she was, but she, you know it's possible that Hobbs l left Amanda with the Jacoby family at least some of the time he was out searching. But uh, the stories differ and vary, and it's and Amanda was too young to be any help as far as like recalling exactly what what went on. Um. Terry dropped off Amanda and Pam at home, then joined Jacoby and Jackie Hicks Sr. on a search until late at night. Between five, when Terry dropped off Pam, and eight, when Terry showed up at the buyer's home, Hobbs searched for Stevie. Not interviewed formally by police until June 21st, 2007, which is, you know, 14 years after the fact. Hobbs gave a voluntary statement to Lieutenant Ken Mitchell and Detective Chuck Knowles of the West Memphis Police Department about that evening. 
Bob said his typical workday running an ice cream sales route over a broad territory began around 5.30 a.m. He generally got home around 3 or 3.30 p.m. And he that's what time he got home that day. And he found Pam and Amanda home, but Stevie wasn't home. The boy had left with Michael already. Uh, both those, All three of the boys were in the Hobbs home that afternoon after uh, Michael and um, Stevie left to ride bicycles. Chris Byer showed up, watched Muppet Babies with Amanda for a while, and then went out Went out again, uh, presumably looking for Stevie and Michael. Uh, Hobbs recalled walking out along the driveway to see if he could spot the boys. Hobbs drove Pam to work with Amanda in the car. They checked at the Moore home to see if anyone there had any idea about where the boys were. He was told they were riding bicycles. Terry and Amanda rode around from street to street for probably 30 minutes, <coughs> maybe an hour. He was uncertain about times. Excuse me a second. They went home and walked around the neighborhood, hoping to hear the boys in the distance. Soon Dana drove up and asked if Michael was at the Hobbs home. She drove home. Terry followed her. Dawn, the more daughter, told them she had seen the boys go by on their bicycles. At the Moore home, Hobbs encountered, quote, a big billy-looking dude, unquote, Mark Byers for the first time. They figured out that Christopher, Stevie, and Michael were together. And that's when they first discovered, they first figured this out, that they were all together. And this was, you know, fairly late in the evening at, you know, 8 o'clock or so, whenever they were all there together, eight between 8 and 8.30. The times vary up a little bit. Uh, Hobbs discussed calling the police and assumed Dana would make the call. Hobbs said he drove around with Amanda before dropping her off at the Jacobi's. David Jacoby agreed to help in the search. Okay, that was what Hobbs, the gist of Hobbs' statement on uh, to the police. He, he gave another statement in, in uh, a lengthy deposition, very long deposition, that he, in the uh, slander suit he filed against uh, Natalie Maines of the Dixie Chicks. And some of his details varied, and uh, his descriptions of when he first encountered Hobbs and so forth varied somewhat from this. Uh, his his book uh, is not going to clear up all those questions. I can tell you right off right off the top that I don't think I'm giving anything away. There's some of the some of the statements are uh, you know you can't reconcile saying well I was here here at one time and then say I was here in another time. What you can determine from that is, you know, he was there at some point because his presence was confirmed by other parties. And you can get a pretty good idea when that was. Uh, go on with this. And Jacoby is, Jacoby gives, I'm going to read two statements from Jacoby, and I'm going to emphasize before I go in that Jacoby's statements aren't purely consistent either. And um, 14 years after the fact, <laughs> He's interviewed over the phone uh, in, a, in a 
I think it was in, during a work break, the middle of the day. Uh, not exactly ideal circumstances for giving a, a really good interview. And uh, with in, in terms of his uh, police interview. So, and he was quite fuzzy on a lot of details. Uh, what he was consistent about was that he'd, and, and this is true with both of his interviews, was that he spent, that Hobbs was searching for his son, his stepson that evening, and that Jacoby joined him at certain points, and that uh, there was a lot of time eaten up uh, when the most likely time that the, the uh, killings occurred, which was between 6.30 and 8, uh, no matter how you parse these statements from Jacoby, and I think the band's being truthful, uh, the fact is, is, you know, he and Hobbs were both being questioned uh, 14 years later about an extremely stress, stressful evening that happened long ago that, uh, that had no uh, reason to revisit in the kind of detail that was being asked of them because they never, the idea that, oh, we're going to have to come up with an alibi for both of us or we're going to get the, be the object of these wild accusations was not something that even, even entered their heads. Uh, the idea that certainly they were never going to forget this that particular evening, but as far as the details, the times, exact times, who did, who went where and who went what, you know, a stressful event, it's more likely that details are going to get jumbled up, not that you're going to get, keep them, get them straight. So, uh, and they didn't even realize how terrible the situation actually was until later, which would further create problems and that, you know, you try to re-go back and remember exactly, could we have done better? Could, is there something we did? I'm assuming this is what they did, was they somewhat, somewhat revisited their own actions that evening to think, well, is there something we could have done better? What could we have, you know, did, where could we have searched? How could we have prevented this terrible thing from happening? You know, could they possibly have gone through this and not had those thoughts go through their head? I think not. <coughs> Excuse me. On June 20, uh, let me go back over this. On June 21st, 2007, Jacoby gave his first full interview to police, varying in details from Hobbs. Jacoby said Hobbs came over to his house with Amanda around 5.30 or 6 p.m. on May 5th. They played guitars together, I'd say at least an hour. So between 6.30 and 7, they were playing guitars together. <coughs> Hobbs does not corroborate this guitar playing story. Right, for whatever reason. Hobbs left to look for Stevie, presumably after 6.30 or 7. Jacoby could not rec remember if Amanda stayed or left with her dad. Jacoby saw Terry, quote, a couple more times that night. Uh, at one point that night when he come back, uh, I think I went with him to look for the kid. Uh, we drove down the road towards, I think that's Barton Street. 
going out toward these apartments where what's that place? There's Robin Hood apartment, whatever they call it is Mayfair Apartments. I just, I just can't, I'm just really not sure. I mean, if I, if I know at one time me and him did go look, then his wife had come by and she was hysterical. We wound up walking through those woods with her dad as the people was from out that neighborhood. Uh, I was out until three o'clock that morning with them. Uh, not all together. Everybody was kind of branched off. Quote, that was a quote. It was getting dark when he began looking, quote, really close to dark. Well, yeah, it was because when I first went out there, uh, we wasn't there long, and I told him I had some flashlights, and, and I was thinking, Terry brought me back home to get some flashlights, and we went back looking. Man, it's just so hard to remember how it went down. You know, I, that last sentence there sums all this up. Man, it's just so hard to remember how it went down. Jacoby remembered going into the woods, seeing footprints, bicycle tire prints in the ditch, and muddy footprints along the pipe. He remembered Byers, Hobbs, Jackie Hicks Sr., and others calling the boys by name. A police officer was part of the search. So he has some memories, and they correspond to what we know actually happened, including some of the certain names of some of the searchers. Asked about Hobbs' demeanor, he stated, I can just think of Terry as normal... Low-keyed, you know, every time I seen him, and best I can remember that night, uh, he come over, he was fine, you know, I mean, I didn't notice anything unusual, he just like normal, he come in and sit down, you know, and we pick up a guitar, play a little bit before he picked his wife up, uh, like I said, he got up and left and said he had to go check, see if Steve had made it in, or man, I really can't remember. Man, I really can't remember. In other words, his basic memory of this was that Hobbs was not acting in any way unusual. Uh, apparently, you know, Hobbs was generally, according to Pam and and Jacoby, that Hobbs is was very low key in his demeanor quite a bit of the time. Uh, And you can sort of see that in the film Deposition. He, uh, it's a very stressful situation, and he just kind of blew off a lot of stuff. Uh, obviously, was shaken and startled by some things. Some things were visited upon him that he really wasn't expecting. But, you know, he, it was still surprisingly low-key, considering he doesn't lose it at any point, like... Uh, He doesn't act like uh, Byers, for instance, who tells the police, uh, you know, he's uh, he's doing everything he can just to keep his emotions under control when he's confronted with this. And I'm not criticizing either man for their reactions or lack of reactions. Just that they're two different styles of of uh, dealing with with emotions. So according to ha J Jacoby, Hobbs would at his home from around 5.30 or 6 until at least an hour later, which would have been 6.30 or 7. Hob Jacoby did not recall going with Hobbs at that point, only later when it was getting dark. According to that statement, Hobbs' whereabouts had no verified witnesses between 6.30 and 7, possibly later to around 8 or 8.30 over at the Moore home. He would have had an hour, perhaps more, to locate the boys, kill them, bind them, place them in the ditch, and then get cleaned up enough to pass muster 
before Dana Moore and Mark Byers. He may or may not have had his small daughter along with him. That's according to that statement. Three days after the June 21st interview, on June 24th, Jacoby gave a declaration in a defamation lawsuit that Hobbs had filed against Dixie Chick singer Natalie Maines that varied from the earlier statement. He stated that although unsure of the time, he believed Hobbs came over to his house about 5 to 5.30, though it could have been as late as 6. He said he saw Stevie Branch and two other little boys riding bikes with one on a skateboard in the street outside his home, giving no clear time frame. Jacoby said he and Hobbs played guitars for up to one hour, and that between 6 and 6.30, Hobbs told Jacoby that he was leaving to check and see if Stevie had gotten home that Stevie was expected home before dark. Jacoby was 90% sure Amanda remained with him and his wife. Jacoby said Hobbs was gone, quote, for a while. Terry returned to my house later and asked if Stevie had come by. When I said no, I volunteered to go out with Terry to ride with him to look for Stevie. Terry and I rode around the neighborhood for approximately 10-15 minutes looking for Stevie. We drove near some apartments. We did not stop at any houses or talk to anyone at this point. Terry then dropped me off at my house and said he was going to check a few other places for Stevie. I believe Terry again left alone with Amanda staying at my house. After a while, Terry came back to my house. I again went with Terry to ride around and look for Stevie. We drove two more times nearly the same route we had driven before. They talked to children playing at the apartments, and a little girl told them some boys had been riding bikes in the woods. Terry again dropped me off because it was getting dark, so all this driving around was done before it was getting dark, including several, you know, driving around several times, 10 or 15 minutes around the neighborhood, driving some more, drop, come, Terry coming in, Terry coming out. And Jacoby goes on, Terry again dropped me off because it was getting dark and I was going to change clothes and get flashlights to search further. I do not know where Terry went, but I expected him to come back to get me. I believe he took Amanda with him. I changed clothes, but ne Terry never showed back up. Well, and you know, at this point, we're talking, it's got to be 8 or 8.30. We know at 8 o'clock he was, he was at... Uh, uh, around between 8 and 8.30, he was over at uh, the uh, the intersection uh, intersection where the shared by the uh, Moore and uh, Byers family. They lived on the, across the street from each other. Um, and then he was also seen by a police officer at home after 8.30 or so. So... And he picks he picks up Pam at 9:45. This does not leave a lot of time, and that after eight o'clock for for him to have done anything like commit a crime. And of course, if he if the boys hadn't shown up by eight, it doesn't explain why they haven't shown up at eight. Uh, so You know, one of the big great arguments is, is you know, if they went into the woods at 6.30, and I think it's a very credible argument, uh, it's unlikely they would have lingered there for hours until well after dark and then been assaulted by someone. It's almost certain that they encountered someone in the woods 
pretty soon after they arrived, maybe immediately, and were inca at the very least incapacitated and unable to, to, to leave. Uh, evidence suggests they were killed then. I mean, the, the cleanup of the site requires some daylight or, <clears throat> or some use of some very good flashlights. And the, and the kill site was cleaned up pretty darn well. Uh, Jacoby on June 24 said Pam came by the house looking for Stevie and he drove her around, finally meeting up with other searches including Dana Byers, Hobbs, and Hicks. Jacoby continued to search until nearly 3 a.m. He said he had not been searching either alone <coughs> or with Hobbs in the woods near 6 or 6.30. Excuse me, only when it was already dark. So according to Jacoby in the later statement, Hobbs left the Jacoby home around 6 or 6.30 returned after a bit, drove around with Jacoby for 10 or 15 minutes, dropped Jacoby off, returned again to the Jacoby home, and drove around again until it was getting dark, which would have been closer to 8, 30, or 9, before dropping Jacoby off by for the final time. The second statement, though inexact on times, left no time for multiple murders in the woods, followed by a meticulous cleanup. The statements from Hobbs and Jacoby taken 14 years after the murders with both uncertain about times, sequence of events, and other details, didn't offer as clear an alibi as the buyer's timeline. They did indicate between hanging out with Jacoby, looking for Stevie, and conferring with other neighbors, other parents, and police that Hobbs did not have time to commit the crimes. And I would argue further he had no means or motive. Critics of the timelines offered by Hobbs and Jacoby focus on the differences in stories, claiming that Hobbs in particular should remember times and the exact sequence of events because of the significance of his stepson's killing. That's an unreasonable expectation, giving the selectiveness of memory even for once-in-a-lifetime events. In a statement of June 21st, Hobbs said Pam came out from her workplace around 9 or 9.30 with her usual treats, a piece of candy each for Amanda and Stevie. Quote, I said, Pam, we haven't found him yet. And she says he's dead. I said, Pam, don't say that. Don't even think that. I was getting nervous a little bit before I could come up because it was starting to get dark. Unquote. Hobbs could not remember if they first went home or began searching in... Robin Hood Hills, he had not been aware of the woods until neighbors described the boys entering there. He said it looked like, quote, the jungle. I couldn't see eight-year-old boys hanging around. He said he entered the woods with Officer Meek, who says she don't re doesn't remember doing this with Hobbs, by the way, exiting quickly because Robin Hood was hot, muggy, and full of mosquitoes. He said he had gone into the woods earlier around 6 or 6.30 with Jacoby, which didn't accord with his or Jacoby's earlier statements. So this is in this deposition to um, uh, Natalie Maine's attorney. He wasn't sure how long he'd been in the woods then. Quote, I don't know because we would drive around looking and then go down the service road looking and stuff in there and walk out in there from both sides. Unquote. 
Hobbs following leads about possible signings. Hobbs saw Mark and Melissa driving around. In this deposition, Hobbs was unclear about times on most of the night. Quote, David was still with me and then Pam got with me, but Pam was also with her mom and dad that night. Unquote. Hobbs said he was in the company of Jacoby for much of the night. Hobbs said he and Pam went home at some point to change clothes with Pam wanting out of her work uniform. They put on mosquito repellent. And uh, this is another case where Hobbs changed clothes. Just like John Mark Byers, they, they were out searching. They, changed, they went from more casual clothes to clothes more appropriate for searching in both cases and change clothes at home, and their uh, accusers spin this into some sort of nefarious plot. Uh, and let's see, they put on mosquito repellent. They returned to Robin Hood Hills, quote, all night long, which is an exaggeration apparently, but they did stay up pretty late. Hobbs said that by daylight, Pam was accusing Steve Branch Jr. Sr. of having something to do with dis disappearance. Quote, she thought he might kidnap Steve. Uh, Branch, who arrived that morning to help in the search, has never been a suspect. And as I think I've already mentioned, Adam Lee believes that the West Memphis Three are indeed the real killers. Uh, Hobbs recalled a black bum walking down 7th Street near Catfish Island. Quote, and he's wet and looking terrible, but he walks all on the railroad tracks and starts going east. Unquote. Hobbs particularly remembered the bum because, quote, he's coming from that area. And of course, this evokes memories of uh, uh, Mr. Bojangles, who was a black a black guy who, disoriented black guy who messed up the bathroom at the Bojangles restaurant on Missouri Street and it sparked all sorts of, and he left, he had, he was bleeding. He had a, he was, had his arm in a cat, one of his arms in a cast and, uh, it's prompted all about, and he, this came right after the, the, uh, report, the boys were missing. Uh, it's prompted all sorts of speculation that he was involved in this, um, you know, it's a strange, it's a strange little circumstance. Uh, having read many, many hundreds and <laughs> hundreds of not thousands, but hundreds at least of of uh, small town police reports over uh, many over a number of decades, all, all I can say is, you know, these these kind of weird little episodes aren't that unusual, and particularly that stretch of Missouri Street. Uh, where there were not, a lot of transients were hanging out. Uh, it just wasn't that unusual for an incident, not just like this, but not something, something so, not so dissimilar from happening. Uh, just because there were a lot of people, there were a lot of sketchy people hanging around, just sort of wandering around. And West Memphis is like that. There's places that aren't like that. West Memphis is like that. There are a lot of people. It's a high transient area. There are a lot of people there who are just just seem to be sort of milling, not milling about because it's not that crowded, but they're just people sort of wandering off, walking down the road. It's not unusual to see people walking down the road without, uh, you know, 
They're not in vehicle. They're walking down the road. Destination unknown. Uh, so be it. Um, anyway, back to the back to uh, Hobbs' statement, uh, the deposition. They went to Weaver Elementary that morning to see if the boys showed up for school and continued riding around, riding around and walking through Robin Hood. Quote. Me and Pam is riding around to get something to eat, and we couldn't eat. And we go somewhere, and we hear somebody say they found three boys. And they tell us it's on that road by the apartments over there, and so we fly back over there. We get back over there to see the crime scene tape right there, and we don't know what's going on, but there's a lot of people there. We park our vehicle, get out, we start running up to the tape. Pam faints, and I help her get back to the car, and I go up to the crime scene tape. I get there. Gary Gitchell's standing there. I asked him, I says, have you found, I didn't know Gary. And I asked him, have y'all found, have y'all what you find? He said, three boys. He said, I think it's a homicide and it looked like a homicide or something like that. I asked him what? He said, it looked like they've been murdered. And I just fall to my knees and start crying. I look and there's Pam. She's there trying to get her woke up. Holmes's collapse into overwhelming shock and grief was captured on video and was clearly authentic. And yeah, he he ended up lighting a cigarette, which is what cigarette smokers do when they're under that kind of stress. Hobbs described the resulting pressures within the family. After this happened, for some reason, Pam and some of her family turn around, start telling people Terry Hobbs killed them kids. I don't know why they done this. Unquote. He told police that Pam's brother, Jackie Hicks Jr., threatened to kill him. Terry admitted that during a 1997 argument, he backhanded his wife across the mouth. They wrestled over keys and he hit her with his elbow. Pam called her family. Terry called the police. During an ensuing altercation, Hobbs claimed he shot her brother in a warning shot. Jackie Hicks Jr. died in 2006 from a blood clot released in, during one of many follow-up surgeries for the abdominal wound. The Hicks family has blamed Terry for the death. And I think there's probably some dispute about how closely this surgery was tied to the shooting, but I've you know, this is what I wrote, and that was my understanding at the time, and I'm not sure it's changed that much. Uh, but I'm willing to have willing to have my mind changed, uh, if need be, um, if if that's where the facts point. Uh, Pam told police on July 19, 2007, that Terry did not get home from work until close to 4:30 on May 5th. As for his mood, this again speaks to the demeanor of Terry Hobbs and his general low affect. He said, just seemed to be normal every day how he was. He wasn't in a bad mood or he wasn't real, real cheerful. He just Terry, unquote. She had to be at work at five, so they left a little after 4.45 to see if Stevie was at the Moore home. When Terry came to pick her up, he went straight to the phones while she took two pieces of candy to the car. Upon learning from Amanda that Stevie was missing, quote, 
I knew something was terribly, terribly wrong that at 9.30 that he still couldn't be found. So my first instinct and my first thought is he's dead. Terry called the police from the restaurant. By the time the officer arrived, Pam had formulated the belief that Steve Brett Sr. may have kidnapped their son. She then called her family and Philip uh, Palmer, son of the manager of Catfish Island, since she was training to do the night closing. Pam described Terry's account of that evening, uh, quote, he said that uh, when he went back home that he was fixing to get out and walk the neighborhood, him and Amanda, and he said, Dan Moore, come to the house. So I'm gone. Uh, I say this is around a little bit or after 5, 5.30 maybe that Dana came to our house and was looking for Michael, and he said that he told Dana that uh, I'm looking for Stevie also and I'm fixing to walk the neighborhood. So Terry pretty much told me that he walked the neighborhood and uh, he started looking into the wooded area and because I guess someone had said that's where saw the boys go at the last home hour so they were kind of uh, looking in the wooded area unquote Robin Hood Hills was their destination quote as soon as we uh, got off work and there were several people there I was still in my uniform too when there were several people there and a lady told me she said I'll stay here and watch Amanda if you want to walk through and we started walking through this wooded area, and the fear was really on me, hot and heavy, because how all the woods and stuff was growing up. And I said, God, son, surely you're not out here. I started yelling Steve's name. Steve, son, are you here? Son, are you here? Son, you're not in trouble if you're here. Just come out, and then Mark and the rest of them start hollering Michael's name, Chris's name, and stuff like that, and unquote. Uh, she said from 10 to 15 people were involved in the hunt, many unknown to her, quote, just neighborhood people. Like Terry, she had no prior knowledge of the woods. She said Terry took her home and left without telling her where he was going. He left about 10.30 or 10.45 and returned about 11.30. She went to the Jacoby home. Jacoby accompanied her and Amanda back to their house, by which time Terry had returned. Terry and Jacoby left together to search. Terry returned again and left with Jacoby and Hicks to search again. Her account of the rest of the evening and the events of the next day was largely in accord with Terry. She said she was extremely angry with Terry for five or six years for not notifying her sooner about Stevie being missing. Much of the material in her 2007 statement was repeated in declarations on May 20th 2009 in the Hobbs versus Natalie Maines Pazdar libel case. Pam has stated that she believes it was possible Terry was involved in the murders. Much of her belief seems to be based on personal grievances with her ex-husband. She has doubts and questions. Generally, she has fallen short of outright accusing Terry. Um, she cites uh, a knife that she feels that should have been in... Uh, Stevie's pants when he was discovered when he was discovered in Stevie's pants it was actually in Terry's drawer and she cites this as some sort of evidence that uh, Hobbs removed the knife took it home and put it in the drawer after maybe you know it, 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 it's somehow suspicious and um, Terry Hobbs says well you know I took the knife away from the boy because I didn't think he had any business with it being an eight-year-old having a knife um, 
you can the idea that a knife not being where she thought it should be uh, when she had no firm knowledge of where it was that day and there's no reason why she would have she just had she just thought it was she just feels that it should have been with Stevie and then that then that this provokes suspicions on her part is you know it's I guess I suppose it's understandable but it it's not based on any kind of real evidence or facts. It's based strictly on her intuitions and feelings. Uh, and they're not firmly based in, in re reality. Well, Hobbes' ex explanation, from my standpoint, and I realize I'm a man, not a mother, and I'm not a mother, uh, makes perfect sense. Anyway, um, however, I will say, you know, she... She she does feel that she has stated in the past that she feels the West Memphis Three are innocent. She has fallen short of actually outright accusing Terry Hobbs of being involved in the crime. Uh, I won't get into uh, the four perp theory, but her, she, a court action on her part did bring about this uh, public public publicizing of this allegation from a couple of convicted rapists that. Terry Hobbs, um, Jacoby, uh, Buddy Lewis, who's one of Miss Kelly's friends, and L.G. Hollingsworth, who was this somewhat sketchy fellow who hung around with Domini and um, and Eccles and so forth, were, were somehow involved in this killing, which is, there's just no credible evidence of that at all. All they really have is a statement from two guys who are like the lowest of the low, you couldn't go much lower and find, you know, uh, two less credible evidences than these two guys who were convicted rapists. One of them was accused of raping a, a disabled person, disabled woman or girl, uh, and, and serving long prison terms. I mean, why would you even... And they, they don't come up with this until, you know, almost 20 years later. Why would anybody give any credibility to these guys? It makes no sense at all. If there were any facts to back up what they, any corroboration to back up anything they said, but, you know, all the other evidence runs contrary to what their allegations are. But, you know, it got a couple of days of publicity. It made for a nice little news story for the, not a nice story, but it made for, a you know, something to, hang a, a news story on for a couple of days on local TV stations and so forth. My wrap-up wrap here. Uh, meanwhile, in an ironic twist, Mark Byers, no doubt relieved to have someone else be the alternative suspect, has loudly proclaimed Terry Hobbs as the killer. And uh, as far as I know, he, Hobbs has persisted in this view, and uh, he apparently was heavily influenced by John Douglas, uh, and uh, John Douglas paid a personal visit on um, to Byers and basically convinced him that there's no way, based on his profile, certainly not his knowledge of the case, which is it, I, I, it's pretty evident from reading his, uh, uh, the big chunk of one of his books devoted to the case, that he really doesn't know a whole lot about the case has a very poor understanding of it, but based on his profile, which again, about has about as much credibility as far as I'm concerned 
as Pam Hobbs' uh, feelings about her son's knife, uh, that the West Memphis Three can possibly have done this, but uh, but a lone perp, in particular uh, an aggrieved stepfather, might have done it, but not but not uh, Mark Byers. Uh, and you know, I, I'm not going to get too much into Mark Byers. There, there, evident, there's some history of violence with both of these, uh, both of these men. Uh, it's, I mean, I've written, I've mentioned it today in describing this uh, altercation with his wife and the shooting and so forth with Hobbs. And Mark Byers has had some low-level uh, drug dealings that involved, you know, brandishing guns and getting beat up, et cetera, et cetera. I don't think he's probably really a, that dangerous a character, but, uh, you know, he's pretty pretty rough around the edges. I think almost he would probably agree with that. And, uh, you know, he's gotten himself into some tight spots and where violence was resorted to. I'm going to say finally, I, you know, I, that's the end of to the chapter. I, I was going to, I mentioned, uh, I'd started this recording earlier and I, I, the recording didn't take for some reason. I didn't push the right button or something, but I was going to talk about, uh, number one, that Hobbs has a, a book about Terry Hobbs with, written with the, by his cousin, Vicki Edwards, based on Terry Hobbs' story, is going to be coming out. It's called A Box Full of Nightmares, and it's going to be coming out probably this spring. Uh, I've read it. Uh, I've wrote a review of it I, that I will post whenever it comes closer to publication time. It's well worth reading. It's, it's an excellent explanation of what he has gone through as, as I would argue, a, a victim of, of this case just as much as is anybody else short of the actual uh, murdered children? Um, and I was going to mention the quite a bit of posting in the last week or two about the new season of True Detective on HBO, season three. Clearly a lot of parallels with early on with the... Uh, West Memphis Three case. It's set in Arkansas. Children are disappear after riding in bicycles. There's an upset and agitated working class father agitating for police to go out and find his son, which sounds a bit like both both uh, Mark Byers and Terry Hobbs and. and Ho very much justified. If, if my eight-year-old son was out missing, I'd, I'd be ranting and raving too, I'm sure. Um, it's it, it, I, Did I mention it's set in Arkansas? Well, you know, let me, let me say that, you know, for one thing, it's, it's true and it's not true. It's set in the Arkansas Ozarks, et cetera, up around Fayetteville, which is really totally different in terms of terrain, demographics, <coughs> than uh, West Memphis. West Memphis being majority black, Ozarks being 
despite the fact that the lead detective in this is black and his 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 uh, the woman who eventually becomes his wife is black and a school teacher. It, 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 it's not a, an area where there were a lot of blacks then, and there are not a lot of blacks there now. It's, you know, in the small single digits, one, two, three percent in most of those communities. And with Fayetteville drawing, you know, even Fayetteville with an academic uh, environment has a, a small proportion of, of uh, minorities there just a fact um, and that is not to suggest that yes these those characters could could have could have existed in that community at that time yes it's true it could they could have but you know to make it to have race be the focus of of a, an investigation that occurs in an area where it's just like which is like 97 percent white is just really sort of ridiculous um, the um, the parallel there are other parallels where there are three teenagers, you know, kind of long hair, nothing really that unusual, except for they're driving around in a purple Volkswagen, which is a bit of an eye catcher, and apparently they're somewhat they're kind of on the rougher side and somewhat outcast in the school environment. which I'm not really sure I remember high school as being a place where the rougher kids were the ones who were the outcasts. But anyway, that's the way they portray it here. And the West Memphis Three, only one of them was going to school at the time. But uh, they really did not. Uh, Miss Kelly dropped out. He just simply was not equipped for academic life on any level. Um, Baldwin was... I, he perceived himself as being really different, but I, based on photos, my re recollection of the era, and his own descriptions, I don't. I find him to be a very generic sort of teenager of a certain type, you know, sort of a, a you know longer-haired, t-shirt wearing, blue jeans wearing. I like rock music, headbanger kid from you know the early '90s. There were, <laughs> there were probably literally millions of them at the time. Nothing unusual. Eccles is a whole other case. And yeah, he did stand out in a crowd, and that was his whole purpose in being, was to be noticed, to stand out, to be different than everybody else, to be set apart. And he goes out of his way to shock and provoke even now. Um, and he gets rewarded for it now, so it really, why wouldn't he do that? But, uh, you know, it's not clear that these three boys, the, the three teenagers are going to somehow end up being the suspects or apparently there's somebody. It's not clear what happens in that case, in the HBO case. Somebody is wrongly, wrongfully convicted, but you have no idea who it is. And I'm two separate episodes in. It's understandable why they're being coy with that, why they're playing in this game with that. You don't want to give away too much, but... You know, I don't know who they arrested. I don't know who's in prison, uh, wrongfully. Uh, but that's a, a characteristic that at least superficially resembles the West Memphis Three case, with the difference being, of course, all three killers went to prison, and they weren't there wrongfully. 
Now you wouldn't know that from reading the media. I don't actually have no problem with the West Memphis three series. I mean the true detective series so far. I mean, who cares if they use the West Memphis case as a springboard to something else, uh, play with audio expe expectations a little bit, then, you know, go from there, change it totally up. Stranger Things to me was very similar in that it had many things that, that were similar to the West Memphis three case, including the name buyers, but quite a few other, th quite a few other elements were quite similar to the West Memphis three case a boy missing, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and then, uh, but it went on from there to things well beyond anything that happened in the West Memphis three case. And it was very, and it's, at some point the, the resemblances were superficial at best. So that those events maybe were a springboard there. And I, hopefully there'll be a springboard in this case into something more interesting because if they're, all they're going to do is re, re, recreate a, a slight variation on the West Memphis three case. I'm not going to find that very interesting, and I dare say most of the viewers won't. The story's gotten old at this point. Um, what's really gotten old is the way the, the way the case was covered in the media. Now it's just simply taken for granted by mainstream reporters that that Eccles and his crew were wrong, wrongfully convicted. Uh, there was no, no evidence, etc. <laughs> they were arrested because they wore black t-shirts, listened to, listened to Metallica, had funny haircuts. This garbage goes on all the time, uh, with very little basis in the actual case. I've covered this to, enough at this point that I'm not going to go over all the points again, but you know, it's, it's not that black t-shirts weren't a part of the case, but they were a minuscule part. They're certainly not why anybody was arrested. Certainly not why anybody was convicted. You could say the same thing for Metallica and you could say the same thing for the haircuts. Um, certainly weren't that reason that, you know, why would police arrest somebody because they listened to Metallica? It doesn't make, it, it's, 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 it's silly should be treated with contempt instead of repeated again in mainstream media outlets as, as if it's the gospel truth. Anyway, I, I'll be interested to see where it goes. I, I'm sure there's some other parallels I just haven't dwelt upon too heavily. Uh, I noticed this week there was a mention that the Devil's Den, Devil's Den was uh, a part of the area known as the designation for part of the area known as the Robin Hood Hills wood is a wooded area south of the uh, uh, 10 mile bayou <coughs> and there's a Devil's Den State Park which I guess is where they're referring to where the, the, the this disappearance and killing apparently occurs in true detectives so there's that uh, correspondence but there is a real Devil's Den State Park and uh, up near Fayetteville. Uh, so I don't think it's a coincidence that they are using, but that doesn't, doesn't seem to be just a coincidence that that's happening, but uh, that happened that they're those that name pops up in both cases. I think they did draw a lot of inspiration 
<clears throat> initially from the case, from the West Memphis Three case. But as I say, let's see where it goes. I'll be. It's a Saturday afternoon. I'll be watching tomorrow night after the Saints game <coughs> to see where this goes. And now I've started coughing, so I guess I'm wrapping up just in time. Um, thank you for listening. This is episode six of um, the case against. I'm Gary Meese. I'll see you again, or I'll talk to you again soon. Yeah. <clears throat>